Chapter Twelve of Jeremy by Hugh Walpole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve, Hamlet Waits. One. The last day, Jeremy suddenly waking realized this with a confusion of feeling, as though he were sentenced to the dentist's. But oddly enough, looked forward to his visit. Going to school, one had, of course, long ago perceived, was a mixed business, but the balance was now greatly to the good. It was a step in the right direction towards liberty and freedom, thank heaven. No one in the family was likely to make a fuss about his departure, unless it were possibly Mary, and she had, of late, kept very much to herself and worried him scarcely at all indeed he felt guilty about mary he was fond of her really funny kid if only she didn't make fusses yes it was unlike his family to make fusses he realized that very plainly to-day everyone went about his or her daily business with no implication whatever that something extraordinary was going to happen to-morrow perhaps they were all secretly relieved that he was off he had been he knew something of a failure during these last months one trouble after another the scandal of his visit to the fair as the grand finale he felt that there was in some way some injustice in all this he had no desire to be bad or rebellious on the contrary he wished to do all that his elders ordered him but he could not prevent the rising of his own individuality which showed him quite clearly whether he should do a thing or no it was as though something inside him pushed him whereas they all of them only checked him he loved his mother best and he was secretly disappointed to find how ordinary an affair his departure was to her he realized with a perception that was beyond his years that the infant barbara was now rapidly occupying the position as centre of the family that he had held barbara every one declared was a charming baby the house revolved to some extent round barbara but then again this isolation was entirely his own fault during the summer holidays he had gone his own way and had wanted no one but hamlet as his companion he had no right to complain after breakfast he did not quite know what to do and it was obvious also that no one knew quite what to do with him mrs cole said jeremy dear ponting has never sent that letter paper and envelopes that he promised and father must have them to-day would you go down and bring them back with you father will write a note no one seemed to realize what an abysmal change from earlier conditions this casual sentence marked that he should go to footings which was on the farther side of the town alone and unattended seemed to no one peculiar and yet only six months ago a walk without miss jones was undreamt of and before her no more than nine months back there was the jam-pot he was delighted to go but of course he did not show his delight all he said was yes mother he was in his new clothes stiff black jacket black knickerbockers black stockings black boots no more navy suits with white braid and whistles perhaps he would see the dean's earnest it was his most urgent desire 
he started off accompanied by a barking bounding hamlet who showed no perception of the calamity that threatened to tumble upon him for jeremy leaving hamlet was a dreadful affair in three months a dog can change more swiftly than a human being and hamlet although not a supremely greedy dog had shown of late increasing signs of love of good food and a regrettable tendency to fawn upon the giver of the same even when it was aunt amy jeremy had checked this tendency and had issued punishments when necessary and hamlet had accepted the same without a murmur so long as jeremy was there hamlet's character was secure but now during this long absence anything might happen there was no one to whom jeremy might leave him no one who had the slightest idea what a dog should do and what he should not these melancholy thoughts filled jeremy's mind when he started upon his walk but soon he was absorbed by his surroundings he realized even more drastically than the facts warranted that he was making his farewell to the town he was not making his final farewell he would not make that until his death and perhaps not then but he was making farewell to some of his sense of his wonder in it only not thank god to the sense of wonder itself as he went he met the daily figures of all his walks and he could not help but speculate on their realization of the great change that was coming to him it was absurd to suppose that they were saying to themselves ah there's young jeremy cole he's off to school to-morrow i wonder what he's feeling about it no that was incredible and yet they must realize something of the adventure he on his part stared at them with a new interest they had before shared in the inevitable background without individuality but now that he was leaving them and they would grow as it were without his permission he was forced to grant them independence at the bottom of orange street he met mr dawson the cathedral organist he was a little plump man in a very neat grey suit a shiny top-hat and very small spats he was always dressed in the same fashion and carried a black music-case under his arm he had an eternal interest for jeremy because whenever he was mentioned the phrase was poor little mr dawson why he was to be pitied jeremy did not know he looked spruce and bright enough and generally whistled to himself as he walked but poor was an exciting adjective and jeremy when he passed him felt a little shudder of drama run down his spine outside poole's bookshop there was of course mr mockridge mr mockridge was the poorest of the canons so poor that it had become a proverb in the place as poor as mr mockridge and also another proverb i am afraid from the same source as dirty as mr mockridge he was a very long thin man with a big pointing nose colored red not from indigestion and most certainly not from drink but simply i think because the wind caught it his passion was for books and he might be seen every afternoon between three and four o'clock bending over pool's two-pence box a dirty handkerchief flying out of the tail of his long black coat and a green bulging umbrella pointing outwards under his arm to the infinite danger of all the passer-by he was so commonplace a figure to jeremy 
that on ordinary days he was shrouded by an invisibility of tradition but to-day he was fresh and strange he'll be here to-morrow poking his nose into that box just the same and i shall be then on the outskirts of the market-place jeremy paused and looked about him there was all the usual business of the place the wooden trestles with the flower-pots the apple-woman under her umbrella the empty cattle-pens where the cows and sheep stood on market-days and behind them the dark vaulted arches of the actual market now empty and deserted bathed in sunlight it lay very quiet and still some pigeons pecking at grain a dog or two and children playing around the empty cattle stalls from the hill above the square the cathedral boomed the hour and all the pigeons rose in a flight hovered then slowly settled again jeremy sighed and with a strange pain in his heart that he could not analyze moved up the hill the high street is of course the west end of polchester and in the morning between ten and one every lady in the town may be seen at her shopping it had always been the ambition of the coal children to be taken for their walk up high street in the morning but it was an ambition very rarely gratified because they stopped so often and were always in every one's way and here was jeremy at this gay hour a-trolling up the high street all by himself he lifted his head pushed out his chest and looked the world in the face he might meet the dean's earnest at any moment the first people whom he saw were the misses cragg always known of course as the cragg girls they were perhaps polchester's most constant and obvious feature there were four of them all as yet unmarried all with brown red faces and hard straw hats short skirts and tremendous voices forerunners in fact of a type now almost universal they played croquet and lawn-tennis were prominent members of the archery club and hunted when their fathers would let them they were terrible dianas to jeremy he had met one of them once at a children's dance and she had whirled him around until with a terrified scream he broke howling from her arms and hid himself in the large bosom of the jam-pot he was always ashamed of this memory and he could never see them without blushing but to-day he seemed less afraid of them and actually when he passed them touched his hat and looked them in the face they all smiled and nodded to him and when they had gone he was so deeply astonished at this adventure that he had to stop and consider himself if the crags were nothing to him what might he not face come here hamlet how dare you he ordered in so sharp and military a voice that hamlet who had merely cast a most innocent glance at a disdainful and conceited white poodle looked up at his master with surprise nevertheless his new-found hardihood received in the very midst of his self-congratulation its severest test he stumbled into the very path of the dean's wife mrs dean could never have seemed to any one a large woman but to jeremy she had always been a terror she was thick and hard like a wall and wore the kind of silken clothes that rustled like the whispering of a whole meeting of frightened clergymen's wives as she moved she had a hard condemnatory voice and she spoke as though she were addressing an assembly 
but worst of all she had black beetling eyebrows and these frightened jeremy into fits he did not of course know that the poor lady suffered continually from nervous headaches he suddenly heard that voice in his ear good morning jeremy and where are you off to so early mrs dean was never so awful as when she was jolly and jeremy caught up by the eyebrows as though they had been hooks and hung thus in mid-air for all the street to laugh at nearly lost his command of his natural tongue he found his voice just in time to ponting he said all alone ah no i see you have your little dog nice little dog and how's your mother she's quite well thank you that's right that's right we haven't seen you lately you must come up to tea with your sisters i'm afraid you won't find ernest he's gone back to school but i dare say you're not too big to play with little girls jeremy felt some triumph in his heart i'm going to school to-morrow he said but if he expected mrs dean to be pitiful at this statement he was greatly mistaken are you indeed such a pity you couldn't have gone with ernest but he'd be senior to you of course good-bye good-bye give my love to your mother and she pounded her way along she's a beastly woman anyway thought jeremy i wish i'd found something to say to her i wonder whether she knows i knocked ernest down in the summer and trod on him but the sight of the high street soon restored his equanimity on other occasions he had been pushed through it either by the jampot or miss jones so rapidly that he could gather only the most fleeting impressions to-day he could linger and linger he did the two nicest shops were manning's the hairdresser's and ponting's the bookshop but rose the grocer's and coulter's the confectioner's were very good mr manning was an artist he did not simply put a simpering bust with an elaborate head of hair in his window and leave it at that he did indeed place there a smiling lady with a wonderful jewelled comb and a radiant row of teeth but around this he built up a magnificent world of silver brushes tortoise-shell combs essences and perfumes and powders jars and bottles and boxes manning was the finest artist in the town ponting at the top of the street just at the corner of the close was an artist also but in quite another fashion ponting was the best established most sacred and serious bookseller in the county in the days when the new waverley was the sensation of the moment mr ponting grandfather of the present mr ponting had been in quite constant correspondence with mr southey and mr coleridge and had once when on a visit to london spoken to the great lord byron himself this tradition of aristocracy remained and the present mr ponting always advised the bishop what to read and was consulted by mrs lamb our only authoress on questions of publishers and editions and such technical points for all this jeremy at his present stage of interest would have cared nothing even had he known it but what he did care for were the rows of calf-bound books with little ridges of gold that made a fine wall across the window with an old print of the cathedral and the close in the middle of them inside pontings there was a hush as of the study and the church combined 
it was a rather dark shop with rows and rows of books disappearing into the ceiling and one grave and unnaturally old young man behind the counter jeremy did not know what he should do about hamlet so he brought him inside only to discover to his horror that the fiercest of all the cannons canon waterbury held the floor of the shop canon waterbury had a black beard and a biting tongue he had once warned jeremy off the cathedral grass in a voice of thunder and jeremy had never forgotten it he glared now and pulled his beard but hamlet fortunately behaved well and the old young man discovered jeremy's note-paper within a very short period then suddenly the canon spoke dogs should not be inside shops he said as though he were condemning someone to death i know said jeremy frankly i wanted to tie him up to something and there was nothing to tie him up to what did you bring him out for at all said the canon because he's got to have exercise said jeremy discovering to his own delighted surprise that he was not frightened in the least oh has he i don't know what people keep dogs for and then he stamped out of the shop jeremy regarded this in the light of a victory and marched away his head more in the air than ever he should now have hurried home the midday chimes had rung out and jeremy's duties were performed but he lingered listening to the last notes of the chimes hearing the cries of the cathedral choir boys as they moved across the green to the choir school watching all the people hurry up and down the street ah there was the castle carriage perhaps the old countess was inside it he had only seen her once at some service in the cathedral to which his mother had taken him but she had made a great impression on him with her snow-white hair he had heard people speak of her as a wicked old woman perhaps she was inside the carriage but he only saw the castle coachman and footman and the coronet on the door it rolled slowly up the hill with its fine air of commanding the whole world then it disappeared around the corner of the close jeremy decided then that he would go home across the green and down orchard lane he had a wish to enter the cathedral for a moment such a visit would after all complete the round of his experiences he had never entered the cathedral alone and now as he saw it facing him so vast and majestic and quiet across the sun-drenched green he felt a sudden fear and awe he found a ring and a stone near the west end through which he might fasten hamlet's lead then slowly pushing back the heavy door he passed inside the cathedral was utterly quiet the vast nave stained with reflections of purple and green and ruby was vague and unsubstantial all the little wooden chairs huddled together to the right and left leaving a great path that swept up to the high altar under shafts of light that fell like searchlights from the windows the tombs and the statues peered dimly from the shadow and the great east end window with its deep purple light seemed to draw the whole nave up into its heart and hold it there all was space and silence light and dusk a little doll of a verger moved in the far distance an old woman so quiet that she seemed only a shadow passed him wiping the little chairs with a duster 
It seemed to Jeremy that he had never been in the cathedral before. He stood there, breathless, as though in a moment something must inevitably happen. Although he did not think of it, the moment was one of a sequence that had come to him during the year, his entry into the theatre with his uncle, his first conversation with the sea-captain, the hour when his mother had been so ill, the evening on the beach when Charlotte had been frightened, the time when Hamlet had been lost and he had slept with him under a tree. All these moments had been something more than merely themselves, had had something behind them or inside them for which simply they stood as words stand for pictures. He analyzed, of course, nothing, being a perfectly healthy small boy, but if afterwards he looked back, these were the moments that he saw as one sees stations in a journey. One day he would know for what they stood. He simply now waited there as though he expected something to happen. Thoughts slipped through his mind quite casually, whether Hamlet were behaving well outside, what the old lady did when she was tired of dusting, who the stone figure lying near him might be, a figure very fine with his ruff and his peaked beard, his arms folded, his toes pointing upwards, whether the body were inside the stone like a mummy, or underneath the ground somewhere. How strangely different the knave looked now from its Sunday show, and what fun it would be to run races all the way down and see who could reach the golden angels over the Reredos first. He felt no reverence, and yet a deep reverence, no fear, but nevertheless awe. He was warm and happy and comfortable, and yet suddenly, giving a little shudder, he slipped out into the sunlight, released Hamlet, and started for home. 2. Back again in the bosom of his family, he felt that they were beginning to be aware of his departure. "'What shall we do this evening, Jeremy, your last evening?' said his mother. Everyone looked at him. "'Oh, I don't know,' he said uncomfortably. "'Just as usual, I suppose.' "'You're making him feel uncomfortable,' said Aunt Amy, who loved to explain quite obvious things. "'You want it to be just an ordinary evening, dear, don't you?' "'Oh, I don't know,' he said again, hating his aunt. "'I don't think that quite the way to speak to your aunt, my son,' said his father. "'We only inquire out of kindness, thinking to please you. "'No, Mary, no more. Friday, one helping.' "'Jeremy might have another, as it's his last day, I suggest,' said Aunt Amy, who was determined to be pleasant. "'I don't want any, thank you,' said Jeremy, although it was treacle pudding, which he loved. "'Well, I think,' said Mrs. Cole, "'that we'll have high tea at half-past seven, and the children shall stay up afterwards, and we'll have midshipmen easy.' Jeremy loved his mother intensely at that moment. How did she know so exactly what was right? She made so little disturbance, was so quiet, and was never angry, and yet she was always right when the others were always wrong. She knew that above all things he loved high tea—fish pie and boiled eggs and tea and jam and cake—a horrible meal that his later judgment would utterly condemn, but nevertheless something so cosy and so comfortable that no other meal would ever be able to rival it in those qualities. "'Oh, that will be lovely,' he said, his face shining all over. 
nevertheless as the afternoon advanced a strange new sense of insecurity unhappiness and forlornness crept increasingly upon him he realized that he had that morning said good-bye to the town and now he felt as though he had in some way hurt or insulted it and all the afternoon he was saying farewell to the house he did not wander from room to room but rather sat up in the schoolroom pretending to mend a fishing-rod which mr monk had given him that summer he did not really care about the rod he was not even thinking of it he heard all the sounds of the house as he sat there he could tell all the clocks that one booming softly the half-hours was his mother's bedroom there was a rattle and a whirr and there came the cuckoo clock on the stairs that was the fast cheap careless chatter of the little clock on the schoolroom mantelpiece there was the whisper of miss jones's watch which she had put on the table to mark the time of mary's sewing by there were all the regular sounds of the house the distant closing of doors deep down in the heart of the house some one was using a sewing-machine somewhere voices came up out of the void and faded again some one whistled some one sang his gloom increased he was exchanging a world he knew for a world that he did not know and he could not escape the feeling that he was in some way insulting this world that he was leaving he bothered himself all the afternoon with unnecessary stupid affairs to cover his deep discomfort he whistled carelessly and out of tune he poked the fire and walked about he was increasingly aware of hamlet and mary mary was determined so hard that she would show no emotion at all that she was a painful sight to witness she had scarcely spoke to him and only answered in monosyllables if he asked her anything and hamlet had suddenly discovered that the atmosphere of the house was unusual he had expected in the first place to be taken for a walk that afternoon then his master was very busy doing nothing which was most unusual then at tea-time his worst suspicions were confirmed jeremy suddenly made a fuss of him pouring his tea into his saucer giving him a piece of bread and jam and an extra lump of sugar hamlet drank his tea and ate his bread and jam thoughtfully they were very nice but what was the matter he looked up through his hair and discovered that his master's eyes were restless and unhappy and that he was thinking of things that disturbed him he went away to the fire and sitting on his haunches gazing in his metaphysical way at the flames considered the matter jeremy came over to him and drawing him back to him laid his head upon his knee and so held him hamlet did not move save occasionally to sigh and once or twice to snap in a sudden way that he had at an imaginary fly he thought that in all probability his master had been punished for something and in this he was deeply sympathetic never seeing why his master need be punished for anything and resenting the stupidity of human beings with their eternal desire to be in some way or other asserting their authority gradually in front of the hot fire both boy and dog fell asleep 
jeremy's dreams were confused bewildered distressing he was struggling to find something was always climbing higher and higher to discover it only to be told that in the end he was in the place where he had begun hamlet's dream was of an enormous succulent bone that was pulled away from him so soon as he snapped at it they both awoke with a start to find that it was time for high tea three throughout the evening jeremy was more and more lonely he had never before felt so deep an affection for the family and never been so utterly unable to express it it was as though during the whole year he had by his own will been slipping away from them and now they had gone too far for him to call them back he sat on the floor at his mother's feet while she read midshipman easy it was all so cosy the room was so comfortable with all the familiar pictures and photographs and books and helen and mary diligently sewing and hamlet stretched out in front of the fire his nose on his paws six months ago jeremy would have felt utterly and absolutely part of it now he was outside it and at the same time was inside nothing else it might be that in a week's time he would be so familiar with his new world that he would be as happy as a cricket he did not know he only knew that at this moment he would have given all that he had to fling his arms round his mother's neck to be hugged and kissed and nursed by her and that at the same time he would have died rather than do such a thing the evening came to an end the girls got up and said good-night his mother kissed him holding him perhaps for a moment longer than usual but at that same instant she said oh i must remind ella about the half-past seven breakfast again she always has to be told everything twice the girls went on ahead jeremy and hamlet following close behind jeremy found himself alone in the schoolroom where the fire was very low giving only little spurts and flashes that ran like golden snakes suddenly around the darkness moved by an impulse he went to the toy cupboard and opening it put his hand quite by chance on the toy village the toy village he laid it out and spread it on the floor he could not see but he knew every piece by heart and he laid it all out the church and the flower garden and noah's house and the village street the animals and the noahs what centuries ago that birthday was what worlds away how excited he had been and now with a sudden impatient gesture he tumbled the pieces over on their sides then quickly as though he were afraid of the dark went into his bedroom and began to undress four in the morning events moved too quickly for thought he had still the same lonely pain in his heart but now he simply was not given time to consider it his father called him into the study he gave him ten shillings and a new prayer-book jeremy knew that he was trying to come close to him and be a friend of a new kind to him he heard in a distance such words as a new world full of trial and temptation god sees us work at your latin cricket and football prayers every night but he could feel no emotion nothing but terror lest some sudden stupid emotional scene should occur nothing occurred he kissed his father and went 
then quite suddenly just as he came down in his hat and coat and heard that the cab was there his restraint melted he was free and impulsive and natural he kissed mary telling her you may have my toy village i'd like you to yes rather i mean it he kissed helen and barbara and then held to his mother not caring whether all the world was there to see the old life was going with him he was not leaving it after all the town and the house and all the things to which he had thought that he had said good-bye were going with him hamlet he found the dog struggling to get into the cab that was more than he could stand he was not going to make a fool of himself but the only way to be secure was to get into the cab and hide there he caught hamlet's head gave it a kiss then jumped in catching a last glimpse of the family grouped at the door the servants at the window the old garden with the dead leaves gathered upon it hamlet held struggling in mary's arms he choked down his sobs felt the ten shillings in his pocket then with a mighty resolve to which it seemed that the labours of hercules were as nothing leaned out and waved his hand the cab rolled off hamlet lay down upon the mat just inside the hall door someone tried to pull him away he growled showing his teeth his master had gone out he would wait for his return and no one should move him End of chapter 12 End of Jeremy by Hugh Walpole